back to Sanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And we're starting off a Kurosawa hot streak right now with one of his most popular films, Yojimbo from 1961. Yojimbo. Finally going to learn the story behind the name. <laughs> the name her around the world. Actually, let's start off with that. Why is it called that? That word wasn't used once in the film. Actually, it is. Yojimbo is the direct translation of the word bodyguard. Oh. So the movie is actually called Bodyguard, but for some reason, it's just called Yojimbo normally. It's one of those few Kurosawa movies that does go by its normal Japanese name, like Dodeskaden or Kagemusha, instead of the translation of it. At least Ikaru is usually written to live, like in parentheses. But Yojimbo is not normally listed with bodyguards, just it's Yojimbo. Bodyguard is just like kind of a thudding title. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, are you going to go see Bodyguard? Yeah, I guess that's true. No one would see it abroad. It doesn't really have a good ring to it, but Yojimbo makes me think of Jimmy Neutron, and it, just, it sounds cool. Yeah, Yojimbo is the funniest name for a film of all time. <laughs> it rules. It does rule. It is Kurosawa's biggest box office hit of his career, and one of the highest grossing Japanese films in their box office history. Huge, huge film from Kurosawa Productions working in conjunction with Toho. And no conversation about this movie is complete without mentioning Sergio Leone's ripoff of it, A Fistful of Dollars, which we actually happened to watch a couple months ago. Behind the scenes here, yeah, Tim and I have watched that together. Yeah, before watching this, so you actually saw A Fistful of Dollars before seeing Yojimbo. Yeah, so I got to go see it in reverse. I think Yojimbo is a better movie than A Fistful of Dollars. I agree. Yeah, but like, Fistful of Dollars is a lot of fun. In a way, like, kind of gave me, like, the roadmap of this movie. I was like, all right, there's got to be a fire soon. Like, what's going on? Like, I know this happens because everything that happens in A Fistful of Dollars happened in Yojimbo. Yeah, in the same order. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, I think the only thing was, like, there was no scene where they put two dead guys out in a cemetery and shoot them. I think that that is an adaptation of the magistrate killing that happens in the town over that gets the government official to leave. I think they actually filmed that happening versus in this movie, it's just said. Oh, okay. That's a good point. I didn't remember that. I think that might be yeah, the only like really key difference. Yeah, I was waiting for that. I was like, well, they go to a cemetery. Maybe just because they have range and we're trading out guns for swords here. And uh, I think swords are a lot cooler. The swords are really cool. You don't get to do the famous Fistful of Dollars six shots at once thing, which is sick. But you get the equivalent, which is just to share Mifune killing people in like five seconds. This is a film that is inspired by Westerns. Kurosawa loves the Western. And in turn, it wound up inspiring other Westerns. So it's kind of a back and forth between East and West. Similar to Seven Samurai, which we actually neglected to mention because there was so much to mention in that show. But The Magnificent Seven is an extremely popular example of a Kurosawa movie being turned into a Western because people don't want to read subtitles. Yeah, people don't want to read subtitles and it's foreign. They just want an Italian movie where the audio doesn't line up. Well, the audio doesn't line up, and it's the Italian movie that takes place in America. <laughs> Honestly, these stories are still being adapted. The last season of The Mandalorian literally had a Seven Samurai episode. Uh, Bugs Life, uh, another famous example. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There should be more Yojimbos. This is a good story. One big thing that this movie is giving us that we're going to be seeing a lot of in the future is the first real appearance of the new new hotness, Tatsuya Nakadai, who is essentially the equivalent of Toshiro Mifune for Masaki Kobayashi. He's the star of The Human Condition, Harakiri, Kawaidan. So he's a very big name. He's actually, as of this recording, still alive and working today in Japan. And oh, he will be the star of a lot of the Kurosawa movies that we've got coming up. Toshiro Mifune is kind of on the wane. We only have a couple more movies with him, but we're going to have a lot more with Nakadai. Yeah, he's the new uh, young Hakai in Japanese cinema. 
which Shoshima Mifune was in the 40s, and now it's coming to the 60s, so he's getting a lot older. Takashi Shimura is looking real old in this one. Bufune is a weathered, strong, middle-aged man. And then now we got young boy, babyface Tatsuya Nakadai. He's an extremely popular and talented actor in Japan, and with good reason. He apparently has a quick appearance in Seven Samurai as, like, one of the wandering samurai that they don't hire in one of those infinite montages that takes up the first 90 minutes. Yeah, there's thousands of people in that movie. But I don't really count that. This is his first real appearance where he actually is Tatsuya Nakadai. We have tons of Kurosawa regulars, but we have one small one that I think we mentioned right at the beginning. Our boy Senshiro <laughs> shows up for like <laughs> two scenes briefly, the shortest cameo ever that's still extremely funny. The biggest smile in the East. I literally didn't recognize him when he walked in. He walks in and he's just like is pissed because uh, Toshiro Mufune's character, Sanjuro, is better than him. And then he just like skips town. I didn't recognize him until he looks up at the gate and he gives that winning fucking smile. is <laughs> like beautiful smile. And I was like, oh my God, it's him again. <laughs> I thought the same thing. I was like, I don't know if I was maybe just taking notes during the scene where we were like a little bit closer to his face or because we were in like a profile. I didn't notice it at first and I forgot that he was going to be in this one. And then we started running and I was like, this is weird. And then he turns around and gives that smile and that wave and Toshiro yeah, yeah. waves back. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was so happy to see him. And then you never see him again. He just runs away. That's it. Yeah, he, he made it out alive. He's the only member of these gangs to get out of it alive. Because he was like, they want us to go into this crazy civil war. There's no way we're going to win. So I'm going to leave. <laughs> another Kurosawa regular, we got Isuzu Yamada back again as another evil wife. Yeah, and she did a great job again. Kurosawa is not letting her show a whole lot of range. Her young son escapes captivity and he's like, Mom! And she's like, you should have just died. <laughs> yeah, you should have bit your tongue off and died and slapped him like eight times. She gets killed. All the other women get to live, but not her. A lot going on with a lot of familiar faces in a really, really crazy movie. So let's tell them what it's about. Wandering Ronin, Sanjuro Kuobatake arrives at a town controlled by two rival gangs. He befriends Ganji, an old restaurant owner disgusted by the state of his home and the brewing civil war between gang leaders Ushitoro and Seve. After proving his superior sword fighting skills, Sanjuro becomes highly desired as a bodyguard for both sides. He attempts to force the gangs into killing each other, but this is halted by the arrival of a government official. Sanjuro then frames the kidnapping by Seve's gang while freeing a captive woman and sending her family away. Ushitoro's gang destroys Seve's and Sanjuro is captured when they discover he freed the family. Sanjuro is badly tortured, but he escapes to Ganji's restaurant. He is snuck out of town on a coffin to recover at a temple. Days later, Ganji is set to be executed, so Sanjuro returns to town and kills the remaining members of Ushitora's gang. He frees Ganji and makes his way out of town, his work completed. And that is the plot to A Fistful of Dollars by Sergio Leon. <laughs> it's a fun story. It's about this guy, this like wandering stranger, who is like ultra-talented, like a wandering master, I guess is the idea. It's like kind of an archetype that we've seen a little bit before. That one guy, Kyozu in Seven Samurai, was a little bit like this, where he's just, like, clearly better than everyone else. But unlike Kyozo, Sanjiro's allowed to smile. Yeah, Sanjiro's one allowed to smile, and two is an asshole. <laughs> kind of. He's, like, an asshole with a very good heart. He has a good heart, but he also is very happy to just have people die. <laughs> he was like, oh, these people are gamblers. They all deserve death, and I will kill them myself. He has that cool line where he's like, I get paid to kill, and this town is full of people that need to die. <laughs> yeah, he really is a badass. It takes until he fucks up to get taken down any notches at all. He gets away with so much. He's not even the one that really messes up. He's exposed by someone else. He was always a step ahead. He isn't just a meathead brawler in this one that just happens to be good with swords. He's a legitimately intelligent, smart guy. And I would argue Mifune's most iconic character 
and maybe his best performance. I'll have to figure that out by the end of this whole retrospective, but it's a really, really awesome performance. The way that he owns his mannerisms, he's got that shoulder shake to signify him. The choreography with sword fighting in this is the best we've seen. It's actually good, finally. <laughs> Unlike, you know, like uh, Rashomon, the first time we had sword fighting, and it wasn't very exciting. The worst sword fighting I've ever seen, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I still stand by the fact that I think it was intentional. <laughs> Oh, I, I agree. I just don't think that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of them is a master samurai, <laughs> but this isn't the Rashomon episode. The sword fighting is good. It's a little bit tempered by the fact that it's mostly just whenever he gets into a sword fight, he wins instantly, but it is really sick every time he does it. And there is some other fighting among other people. There is actually less fighting in this movie than I remembered. I was actually surprised how little fighting there is, but I hardly notice because the movie, like Seven Samurai, is really funny. <laughs> like, oh my god. It was like a little too funny. I was like, this movie's really funny. I can't even... I'm not feeling anything but total amusement everything that's happening. Donald Ritchie in his book says this is Kurosawa's first straightforward comedy. Yeah, it's just a comedy with fighting. He like, it specifically is like, this movie is a comedy because everybody in this movie is so evil and the world is so terrible that the only reaction you can have is laugh. People just get owned. Like, this is just the movie people getting owned. Everything that happens in the movie is hysterical. My favorite thing in this movie is the coffin maker, who is like the only guy in town who's making money because everyone keeps killing each other, so they keep needing to buy coffins. And then the pendulum swings too far the other way, and then it's like, too many people are dead, and now no one's buying any coffins because it's just mass graves. I'm not making any money. Yeah, the magistrate's like, shouldn't you be happy? <laughs> He's like, no, I'm still not making any money. Magistrate is funny. He's like literally just a buffoon, a la like the men who turned the tiger's tail. I think he's the most ridiculous character since then. Yeah, yeah, I got a lot of that. He literally just goes like, ah, <laughs> every time anything happens. <laughs> it's like he's doing an impression of some of Toshiro Mifune's roles where he just kind of jumps in the air and screams and runs. At one point, Sanjuro at the end is like, hey, he's like, yeah. He's like, go kill yourself. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> just go hang yourself. <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah, he owned him. Sanjiro himself is a very charismatic dude. He just cracks a lot of jokes. He makes the decision to go to town purely by just throwing a stick in the air when he's yeah. at a crossroads. And that's what sets this entire plot in motion is just him saying, I can go either way. And that really is going to be his story throughout this movie is he's got both gangs at his disposal and he just throws it up in the air. It's like, I don't really care which way it goes because I don't want to go either of these ways. Yeah, literally every time he is given a choice to pick a side, he refuses. To the point where it's insane. They're like... All right, we're paying you. You're our bodyguard. He's like, I'll think about it. And he walks away. Like, yeah, because like, what are they gonna do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he finally picks someone and then immediately betrays them. Another cool thing that Richie pointed out is that he kind of equates Sanjiro in this movie to being like a Greek god in a play, and I think that is illustrated very well by the fact that he constantly is up on that bell tower where he's above everybody looking down. He can't be involved in the plights of mere mortals here because he is like a superhuman fighter and he thinks like all this squabbling is stupid, but he's going to kind of work things out, but his own way, just because he feels like it. Literally at every point in the movie, even when he's getting beat up, he is above all this. He's just there for amusement. Oh my God, that's such another funny scene when they get one of the guys that oh wants him God. dead to help him carry the coffin because it's too heavy. And he's like, oh, come on. You're a big, strong man, right? He's like, I'm not going to help you. He's like, what are you afraid? He's like, no. <laughs> he helps him. No, I'll carry this coffin by myself. Now, where are the ghosts? Oh, the ghosts wouldn't show up for someone big like you. Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and then he's like, what's in this coffin? It's like, shouldn't you be looking for Sanjiro? And he's like, oh my God, yeah. Oh my God, my brother's going to beat my ass. <laughs> he runs away. <laughs> 
Daisuke Sato, another frequent Kurosawa actor with a terrible unibrow and really strange looking teeth. He looks just like a total buffoon, which he is, but I really love him in this one. Inokichi, his character. That role could be annoying, but he plays it perfectly. He's just super funny. I love to have him around, even though he's like evil, <laughs> like a, an awful person. He's just like so fun. He has a weird thing where like his two front teeth only extend all the way onto his bottom lip and like stick just like sucking his lip as he walks around looking like dumb. <laughs> <laughs> He's another Crumbopulous Michael type where he's just like, I just love to kill people. <laughs> also have that one dude who's like 800 feet tall. They have their version of Andre the Giant carrying around a giant Literally. mallet like he's in a Mario game. I thought that. I was like, what is this Andre the Giant motherfucker doing in this film? He's so tall. His voice is so deep. Who is he? They like don't address it, really. That guy's last name is actually Rashomon, which is really weird to me. That's insane. That's super wild. I was like, that's not real. <laughs> is he an actor or is he just like a guy? He's only in this and one other movie. He must have been like a wrestler or something. I don't really know. The way that Andre the Giant would play a role like in The Princess Bride is exactly the same way that this guy plays that role. Yeah, it's like the same character. (laughs) Clearly, the giant men having that exact personality is something that transcends cultural boundaries. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Now he ruled. One thing that I both liked but didn't like was Ushitora's men were all like really interesting. There was the big guy, there was the dumb idiot, and there was the, and the guy with the gun. All these characters are very cool. And then Sebei had, like, nothing. The two gangs are actually pretty different, and I, I do like the way that this town, we get to really know everybody that's in it, and it starts to open up more as the movie goes. There is a lot more going on behind the scenes, which can sometimes be a little confusing, but isn't really important. Just a little. It doesn't really matter that much because there's also like the sake brewer. There's the silk seller who they're kind of the shadow men who run the town, even though they have a real mayor who has no actual power. The mayor's just like a rich silk guy and the other mayor is just like a rich sake guy and they both support one gang. They get played against each other. Sebe runs a brothel, so he's got a bunch of women and a bunch of armed guys. And then Ushitora, I think, is selling silk now, but really he runs a gambling ring. And all of these guys are just criminals that as soon as the government official shows up, they all have to hide because all of them have like a death mark. I guess like, yeah, even for the time, the Edo government had some authority when they showed up, but otherwise, not at all. They even comment on that. Sanjuro's like, why does this fucking government official have such a nice palaquin? And then he sees like everyone in town like kiss his ass with sake and woman and whatever. He's like, oh, that's why. All that plays into the illusion versus reality because there is the appearance of this town and then we learn everything about what actually goes into it. Sanjiro becomes put right in the middle. We learn his name because when he finally is asked it like a third of the way through the movie, they look out on a mulberry field and he says, Sanjiro Kuabatake, which translates to 30-year-old mulberry field. So it's just the thing that he's looking at and we'll get to it next week. But in the sequel, Sanjiro, he will say his name is Sanjiro again, but with a different last name. So we can assume that Sanjiro is his real name, but it might be like Lord Kikuchio, quote unquote. Another Toshiro Mifune character who's gone through life without actually having a name. (laughs) It's hard to know. It's hard to get a beat on him because at the same time, he is like a legitimately cool character that you actually understand and also a pretty generic one that kind of fits into anything, which is why the man with no name trope works so well and is so translatable. Yeah, Cirque du literally just makes him the man with no name. (laughs) Instead of the man with a generic name that doesn't mean anything. The other names are kind of wild too. I mean, Ushitora means tiger bear. Yeah, because his labor took so long that he was started in one year and finished in the next. Inakuchi means like stupid pig or something. <laughs> they knew this guy was dumb the moment that he was born. He's playing with names in this movie. It's fun. 
Sanjiro is in the middle of these two gangs and they keep trying to pay him more money. And in the middle of all these gangs also is Gonji, the restauranteur. Owner of the only legitimate business in town. Always angry all the time. Sanjiro kind of like forces him to become his friend. Because he like doesn't really want him here, but he just keeps showing up and not leaving. And he's like, okay, fine. He says like, I'll feed you, but get the fuck out of town. And then Sanjiro's like, I think I'll stay. He's like, this sucks. <laughs> I think he sleeps there, and the owner like is annoyed about it. He's like, this isn't a brothel. You can't just keep staying here. He's like, I'm going to keep staying here. And what are you going to do about it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, what could you in that position do at all? Besides, like, not feed him, which wouldn't work. I do think Ganji comes to like Sinjuro, especially when Sinjuro starts doing actual good deeds instead of killing people. He starts to understand what he's doing and how what he's doing is actually accomplishing the thing that Gonji wants to happen. Yeah, the main thing Gonji hates is violence. Yeah, it's like he's not actually the one who's perpetrating a lot of the violence. He's just kind of manipulating things to make it happen. Because when he's first doing the offers, they start offering him money and he's like, hold up. And then just leaves, goes to the exact other gang, gets their guys to come out and just kills three of them instantly. And then walks (laughs) back and they're like, yeah, okay, well, what do you want? We'll pay you. (laughs) Yeah, we'll pay you. He bargains them up from like two to 50 initially, 25 beginning, 25 afterward. But then he learns of a plot to kill him. The guy winds up offering 25 times as much Rio for his services, which, like, you wouldn't even think he'd be able to afford. And everyone else is getting paid, like, one Rio. Not even. Everyone else is getting, like, silver pieces. He really does command ridiculous prices. He does prove himself. At one point, I'm like, he should, like, start proving himself again. It's been, like, a month since he killed anyone. (laughs) Then he's still, like, the hottest thing in town. But, no, he really is. Everyone is just so scared of him. On Seibei's side, they're planning like, okay, we'll get this gang civil war officially started, and after he kills everybody for us, we'll just kill him and get all our money back. As if, if this man was able to mow down the other army, he wouldn't also be able to mow down their army of equally terrible soldiers. Yeah, they're like, we'll kill him at night when he doesn't suspect because he'll trust us, but he overhears that, and right before the actual fight starts, is like, yeah, I actually don't want you to kill me when this is over, so uh, fuck off. And then he watches from the watchtower. Yeah, and he's like, come on, fight. And everyone just keeps running towards each other and then running back because they're too scared to actually engage in the conflict. And he finds it both amusing, but like you can clearly tell that he wants a bloodbath. Yeah, he's like, okay, this is funny, but come on. And then, unfortunately, is a little convenient, interrupted by the government official showing up. So then he's got to figure out a new plan. And he spends a lot of time with Gonji in this time. And what I really love about Gonji's shop is that he's right in the middle, like I said, but he's got a lot of open spaces through the wood slits, like makeshift windows. And I tell you, this movie has such a great sense of place. Everything is happening outside, and it's like the actual set that they're shooting this on. So people are walking through where he's sometimes getting like three or four layers of objects in the frame, looking at the people inside one house to the people in the other house as other people are like walking by, or there's rain, and then there's windows and other windows. There's so much going on, and the cinematography in this by Kazuo Miyagawa, who is the same guy that shot Rashomon, it is incredible. I noticed, like, right from the beginning, it's very different than a lot of other films. Like, he always kind of shoots Sanjuro, like, from below. He has these, like, real, like, intense close-ups, but with the camera, like, pretty low down. And it creates this, like, you know, sense of him literally just being above everyone. Like, just, like, a totally different lexicon than all of his other movies. It, like, makes a lot of sense for itself, and it's really just very good. I liked it a lot. This may be the best shot Kurosawa movie as well. And this is only the second time that these two have been able to work together because Miyagawa was primarily employed by Daie, and Kurosawa was always working at Toho. And Rashomon was made at Daie, so that was the time that they crossed over. 
now he's got his own production company, and it's been 11 years, so Kazuo's gotten so much better, and he was already great, but he's continued refining his craft, and he's now got so many more resources to work with than just, okay, we're gonna shoot in the woods. Now we've got this entire town that we built, and using so much wind in this movie, that is like the main thing that he's doing. You can always hear it like right before a fight starts, which also feels like a very western influence. Specifically the win at the end, right when he has like this final battle, it's very blustery and there's like huge clouds of smoke coming through. The whole setup reminds me of the end of Senshiro Sugata, where there's like this final battle in like this field with like a ton of wind. In Senshiro Sugata, it's 1v1, but now it's this one guy versus this whole squad of people and you know he's gonna kick their ass. Yeah, definitely. It's taking the old and turning it into something new. So Sanjiro's next plan winds up being to frame a kidnapping from one gang to the other. The government officials in town, there's been no fighting. There's like a really weak truce, and he's like, a truce is meaningless because it's just setting the stage for a bigger battle. Nishitor is like, the government official's about to leave, I know because I had some guy killed to make him leave. So I'm gonna hire you and we're finally gonna do it. Right when the government official's about to leave is when Unosuke comes to town, and he's the one who's like, let's not have a fight, like, let's do this truce. So that, like, kind of throws a wrench in Sundro's plans, because it was, like, just about to happen, they're just about to fight again, right after the rain stops, and then he comes in and, like, stops that. So that's when he has to engineer this new plan. He's got a really cool introduction, because you can tell that Nakadai, there's something lurking behind the surface. He's got, like, a very fresh face. He looks like he could be innocent, but there's, like, a devilishness behind his eyes, He's, yeah, he's, like, kind of young and hot, but, yeah, you can tell that he's insane. When he pulls out that gun, oh, man, you're like, oh, that's a huge new element that's just been brought into this story, because we saw a gun was the downfall of Kuzo in Seven Samurai, you know, what are you supposed to do against it? So now there's this element that could actually bring down Sanjiro. Yeah, it just literally supersedes the skill of sword fighting. When Sanjiro comes in the town, he's the strongest thing in the entire town because no one can beat him with their swords. But then the gun just, like, sidesteps that. This is when Sanjiro has to kind of gin up some violence. Ganji is really happy that everyone's no longer fighting. And Sanjiro, like, goes off on him. He's like, are you kidding me? The truce just means more violence. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen. When this guy showed up in town, literally a dog ran past him carrying a severed human hand. It's like, that's what this town is, not this stupid truce. He gins up some explanation that I, like, I'm pretty sure doesn't actually make sense if you interrogate it. He's like, if they are fighting now, then that means there's going to be no silk trade. And if there's no silk trade, no one's going to make any money, and then the rent won't be paid, so they're going to be fighting again. Then I'm like, but they just stopped fighting, so wouldn't the silk trade be fine? But whatever, it makes sense to him. He's not happy about it, because it means he's not getting paid, and just kind of ruins his whole reason for being there. So that's when he engineers this plan. Well, he doesn't think that the truce is genuine. He's like, I know that they do want to kill each other and that they will kill each other. So it's only a matter of time before that happens. But he doesn't want to wait. This truce is interrupting his plan of getting some action. This man has nowhere to go, but he seems to be in a hurry. So the guys that went to kill the magistrate in another town are back and they're all boozed up in Gonji's restaurant. Sanjiro is able to get some information out of him. And I like that moment where the guy thinks that he killed him. It reminded me a lot of the poison drinking scene in The Bad Sleep Well, where the guy goes into the shock because he thinks he's dead, but he's not dead. He's like, yeah, thanks for giving me the information. I'm going to sell you to the other gang. I was like, damn, just straight up sold two people. Yeah, it was wild. He cuts his like shirt off. He like is playing them against the people. He's like, you only got paid two silver pieces. That's a shame. You deserve better. He uh, finds evidence of this plot. He turns them over to Sebe. And he's like, uh, hey, with these two guys, you could get Ushitora just kicked out of town. And then he goes to Ushitora. He's like, Sebe captured those guys. He found them. <laughs> so they're still playing them off each other. 
in retaliation, they wind up kidnapping Sebei's bitch son. Yeah, they <laughs> kidnap Sebei's idiot son, but they do so by walking outside, seeing him standing there, killing his friend and taking him. Town's so small that you can, like, be like, oh no, they have revenge on us. Let's just go steal one of them, because he's right there. It's so easy. Yeah, they took Sebei's soy boy. Then they engineer, like, a swap. You bring three unarmed men, we'll bring three unarmed men, and then we'll do a trade. They walk it over, and then as soon as they get close to doing the handoff, Unosuke just pulls out his gun that they don't know how to fight out against, shoots both of their hostages that were on their side initially, because they don't actually want them. They just want to prevent them from talking or doing something against them. And then they still keep Seibei's son. But that's when it's revealed that, and this bothered me a little, Seibei is like, oh, I thought you would do that. So I have a woman. <laughs> I don't think we know who this is at the time. He just pulls out a woman, and then Unosuke is like, oh my god, no. <laughs> like, you, you can tell that it's hugely impactful, because there's like a dramatic music cue, and the camera zooms right up to Unosuke's face. But I was like, who is this? I don't know. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I know. It, it's the introduction of a new character. He's been doing this a couple times in this movie. Like, We think we know where everything is going, and then he throws in another little twist that I really like, because it does keep expanding this. Because then we learn that this woman, Nui, was sold to Takashi Shimura's really old character, the sake brewer. She was sold to him by a farmer who couldn't pay off his gambling debts, so that was his wife. Now she is kept hostage in this one place, and he built a little shack for him and his son to sleep on the other side of. This is the moment that really Sanjiro does show us that he is a good person on the inside because he's like, I gotta stop that. Though on the outside, he's like, I hate this worm. Yeah, he's like, this guy's pathetic because he can't do it himself, but I also don't want to watch this woman suffer like this. He goes to Ushitor, he's like, I'll be your bodyguard. By the way, we should go check on that woman. She might be like in danger. Six men isn't enough. He goes with Inokichi to go check on the woman. They just mention the fact that she was someone's wife, and Inokichi's like, oh, I forgot, I gotta go beat him up, and he just runs yeah. into the dude's <laughs> shack, so rips down his door, and then just punches him in the face. He's like, oh, yeah, like, shit, oh, duh, duh, I forgot. <laughs> oh, I forgot, it's time for his nightly beating. <laughs> Literally what it was. But that gives Sanjiro a good opening, because then he's like, Inokichi, the other gang broke in. You gotta tell everybody. The woman's gone, six men are dead, and Inokichi's so dumb, he doesn't even go check for himself. He just takes Sanjiro at his word and runs back to his family. And then Sanjiro's like, all right, business time. Runs in there and just instantly kills all six people. <laughs> One guy, like, walks out, he's like, what's going on here? So he just kills immediately, <laughs> and then runs and kills everyone. Then he's like, huh, it kind of looks too clean in here. Let me just make it look like there was a real fight. Yeah, he starts punching walls and cutting rice bags and setting things on fire. <laughs> then he tells the woman, take your husband and your child and like get the hell out of here. And like, don't leave, which drives him insane. He gives them his money too. He gives them the payment that he received from the gang. He gives them all 30. He's like, I stole this, so I don't need it. <laughs> take it and run, please. And they're just like sitting there like begging at his feet. Like, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll repay you somehow. He's like, I literally don't give a shit. He's like, don't repay me. Never come back here. <laughs> But uh, they're not good at following directions, Kohei and Nui. The next day, the innkeeper, Ganji, is very happy because he, like, learned about what happened. He learned because Kohei came back like a fucking dumbass and gave Ganji a note to give to Sanjiro saying thank you so much. Yeah, one that specifically implicates him. And one that I don't think really is necessary. Unosuke especially is already suspicious of Sanjiro and he thinks that he probably had something to do with it, that he might have staged it. And I feel like he probably could have just done it he has the actual legitimate confirmation. Not really necessary, but it doesn't really hurt that much. It's just like, damn, Sanjiro literally did everything right, and this one dude messed it up. If it wasn't for that guy, Sanjiro could have potentially gotten through his entire plan without ever getting hurt. 
he gets confronted by Inosuke. He has this little note on the table. He tries to hide it with a sake bottle. Ganji notices and tries to take it away. But that's when Inosuke sees it and is like, yeah, that's what I thought. This is all kicked off by the fact that, you know, Kichi saw or he like heard that the woman and Kohei were in another town somewhere. So he's like, wait a minute, that means Seibei doesn't have them. But he's not smart enough to put that together. So it's Inosuke who's like, yeah, idiot, that means that Sanjuro freed them. I do really love that silent conversation between Gonji and Sanjiro with the sake bottles, and unfortunately, Gonji just isn't able to do enough to get him out of that situation. It's the one time that the power dynamic between them is really flipped, and he can't pull through the same way. So then Sanjiro gets his ass horribly beat. Yeah, real bad. He looks terrible. He looks worse than he did in, like, any other movie, I think. He gets his ass kicked a lot in Kurosawa's films, especially like towards the ends of movies, but no. He gets uh, really just beat up here, really bloody. It's a nice reveal where his head is facing the other way and he's groaning on the floor as the biggest man on earth and some other guy are playing a card game. And eventually he like turns his head and you see just like scarred all over his eyes, eyes like puffed up and closed. He gets thrashed around a couple more times and he won't give anybody any information. The big guy hurls him into a chest so hard that he breaks the lock with his body because that guy is so strong. And so when he gets the chance, he's able to sneak into that chest and they think that he's escaped. So he's able to then, when they leave the door open, actually escape and make his way to Gonji's place where he's almost caught again. But Gonji manages to save enough face. Kurosawa doesn't seem to want to show like actual like physical beating of someone that isn't like comedic. The only thing the big guy does continues to just throw something against the wall. Just, like, picks him up and throws him. Picks him up and throws him again. I thought it was, like, odd. I was, like, why is, like, this the torture? Is just repeatedly being thrown on the ground. I have that problem with movies in general where big people just throw people around. But I do think it makes a little bit more sense in this context. Because if this guy punched Sanjiro, he literally could rip his head off. Literally, all the other characters say, like, don't kill him, don't kill him. Every time he throws them, they're like, please don't kill him. We're so worried <laughs> about you killing Sanjiro. The guy's like, I won't, I promise. I take it that that big dude is the torturer, but they don't actually want him to do legitimate stuff yet. Like, they want to make him suffer and they want to get stuff out of him. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. There's that very funny scene where Sanjiro escapes in the coffin with Gonji and Inokichi being tricked into it, like we mentioned earlier. Gonji's like, what are you going to do? And Sanjiro's like, get a coffin. Gonji's like, no, but not for me. (laughs) (laughs) And in the meantime, there's mass chaos going on outside because the gang war is totally breaking out. Ushitora's gang has burnt out Seibei's brothel and killed everybody that's run out. They've killed the entire family, including the wife and son, which was surprising. It isn't a thing that Kurosawa normally does to see a woman, like, cut down. Almost don't expect the wife to die, but I guess she's been so, like, evil this whole time that she just gets murdered. They let the other woman go, which they didn't have to do. That was the most impactful scene to me in A Fistful of Dollars was this massacre. And one of my favorite shots happens here where we're looking at Unosuke and the building behind him just starts bursting into flames really, really big. And he's got this evil, evil smile on him. One thing I really like is shortly before that, you like know that they're going to burn down the place because they talked about before. You know what's happening. You hear like sounds of violence. But this is when the coffin maker and Ganji are moving Sanjuro and they put him down. And Sanjuro's like, wait, I want to see. Can you move me again? So they pick him up again, and that's when we get to see, because the camera just moves with them. It's almost like a joke. Yeah, they moved him like two feet. Yeah, yeah, and then the camera moves with him, and that's when we can see what's going on, too. Sanjiro spends a little while recovering at a nearby temple, doing that really cool thing where he continuously pins down a flying leaf that's blowing around, which looks really cool. I actually think it looks better than it did in Fistful of Dollars, because I think in Fistful of Dollars, they just, like, reversed the footage. Here, it looks like he actually did it. Yeah, there was the first time, it looked totally legit. The second time, it looked like they cut to it, but it was still, like, very good. It's still a pretty convincing effect, considering that we're like, there's no way you could do this. Yeah, yeah. 
But then the coffin maker shows up and he's like, Gonji's been kidnapped and he's about to be like hung. <laughs> Last time we saw Sanjiro try and stand up, he collapsed. Yeah, but it's been a few days. His hair, his insanely long back into a small bun. Now he's at least recovered enough to be a legitimate threat again. Sanjiro has to like save the day. He's going to try and do it with a knife. And the coffin maker's like, wait, it's dangerous to go alone. Use this. <laughs> he gives him a sword. Yeah, he's like, I have a lot of swords from dead bodies that I've buried, and I know it's not good luck to use a dead man's sword, but it's better than that knife. We finally have the Western showdown across town. <laughs> the score in this cool, he's, he's got like a cool little symbol crash, kind of. He's hitting a hi-hat, I think. He's opening the hi-hat and then closing it. Which I don't think is something we've really heard much before. And in general, the Yojimbo theme in this movie is fire. It is so good. It's like, a lot of the score is really jazzy, in like a wild, like crazy, weird jazz way that I love. I really like the score, it was really fun. Yeah, I think it fits with the feeling of the movie, like the tone of it. It's like, really cool, but also fun, but also feels serious. We have these really cool, deep focus shots, you know, very reminiscent of like a Citizen Kane type shot, where everything is in focus, and we got Gonji in the front, and then we see the guys that are lining up. That's another thing that Kurosawa does a lot in this movie, is he has lines of people that's like the shape of this, where like circles are the shape of Seven Samurai, or triangles are the shape of Rashomon. Here we have straight lines. So we got Gonji in the front, straight lines of guys coming, and then one soul samurai at the end, or Ronin, I guess, coming toward them with all this blowing wind. Like, there's just so many layers. It's all behind a giant Tori gate. It's just so cool. I think you're supposed to think that Gonji was hung at first, because you just see his feet hanging in the shot, and then eventually it backs out, and you see that he's being actually hung up by his stomach, so he's not actually dead. But he's just kind of, like, embarrassingly strung up. He's like a pig that's going to be roasted. You see a lot of the scene with him just in the foreground. He looks bothered without looking upset, which is how he looks most of the movie. You're just like, ah, oh, this sucks. The obvious tension here is that Anusuke has a gun, and Sanjuro can't defend that. So they start approaching each other. Sanjuro pulls out his sword, and Anusuke pulls out the gun. Sanjuro essentially, like, jukes to the left, and then throws his knife out, and then gets Anusuke in his arm. Messes him up, and as soon as that happens, in a fell swoop, he takes down everybody. I remember this fight being longer. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, as soon as he, like, gets him distracted and the gun's down, then, like, you basically know. You're like, oh, with the gun out, it's over. <laughs> like, that was the only defense they had. Just fucking slashes them all, even the big guy. I wish there was, like, something there, but it's okay. Yeah, I was surprised there wasn't, like, a cave troll-esque boss battle with that guy swinging the hammer around. It's still really cool because it is, like, damn, this guy was a legitimate threat. Ganji is taken down by the coffin maker, and they're just kind of, like, being cowards in the back. Sinjaro does this. There's a few little things all at once that kind of, like, wrap up the movie. A few weird scenes, yeah. Anusuke is like, hey, samurai, I feel naked without my gun. Could you give me my gun? I won't shoot you. I already used all the bullets. I already used two shots, which is all the bullets, which is, like, obviously not true. And Sanjiro gives him the gun. He gives, like, this huge shit-eating grin because he's a maniac. Then he tries to shoot him, but then he can't because he, like, lost too much blood and just, like, kind of, like, fades out and collapses. Yeah, and shoots into the ground. It's like, it was loaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was going to kill him. When Sanjiro picks it up, I'm like, does Sanjiro know how a gun works? Like, do, I don't know if he's ever held one. They're not very common. I was like, this is a stupid thing for him to do, but I'm pretty confident that if he legitimately did think he was going to pull the trigger, he probably would have just sliced his jugular. I thought he was going to shoot, and then he was going to, like, make him miss, and then cut off his hand. But no, instead he just collapses because he can't do it. And he shoots the ground. The mayor shows up again, banging his prayer drum, which is like a little thing in the beginning. I was like, what the hell is going on? And then he just runs in and stabs Takashi Shimura. I was like, no! He stabs the other Mary, thereby finally, like, wrapping up the last little thread. 
And there's one more full circle piece here. In the beginning, while Sanjuro was on his way to the town, he encountered a little farm residence, and the farmer and his wife are there, and their son is running away to go be a gambler in this town. And then now, at the very end, Sanjuro kills everybody except this one kid, and he recognizes him as that kid in the beginning, and he said, like, I want to essentially live fast and die young, and I don't want to live a life eating gruel. And then he's just like, kids shouldn't play with swords. A life eating gruel is best. Get out and go home. And that kid just runs away. That's just like another nice little bow at the end of it. Everything about Kurosawa's screenplay here is so tight. So many things going on. It just, it all feels so real. And it's just so much fun to watch. Hey, Ganji, pulls out a sword, cuts his rope off. He waits like 30 seconds. He's like, Ganji, see you around. <laughs> and then he walks away. <laughs> I love the way they translate it, see you around. Yeah, he probably said it like super casually. <laughs> He, like, shrugged his shoulders, and then the end. It's so good. Then in the movie, it's like, we saved the city, Patrick. <laughs> He's like, there won't be any violence in this town anymore, because everyone's dead. There's, like, four people left in the town. It's literally these two old guys and a bunch of prostitutes. That's all that's left in this town. The whole movie rules. The cinematography, especially in this movie, rules. My favorite shot from it was Gonji and Sanjiro are sitting shoulder to shoulder facing opposite ways. And that's a technique that I've always loved Kurosawa using. It's one I used in one of my movies. This is like the epitome of it because he does it so many times with these guys not seeing eye to eye. But sometimes they do sit the proper way and they're both facing each other. And that's when we can tell when they're in more agreement about what the next move should be. And also they're becoming closer as characters because they are reluctant friends. But by the end, I do think Gonji really does respect Sanjiro, and I do think that Sanjiro legitimately cared about Gonji. Otherwise, he might not have gone through the trouble of saving him the same way that he saved that woman. But I really love not only that aspect of the cinematography of it, but also the fact that we can see through two other parts of the town, which I mentioned earlier, just gives it such a lively feeling. And it's really hard for a movie to feel so real when so many things are always shot on sets. But this is a set that is meant to feel like a living, breathing town. And I think it especially comes through in this way, where it does feel like a small town feel of people that come in and out of this place and we see them go by about their business and... I really love it. It's always been the shot I think of when I think of Yojimbo. There's so many iconic shots to pick from from this, but this is the one that I actually really always remember. This really does feel like a real town. There's stuff going on outside. It's so, like, well-made. You mentioned before, like, the Citizen Kane, like, deep shots all throughout the film. You can see really into incredible depth. So it's really wonderful. My shot is a little bit harder to justify. It's pretty early in the movie. Sanjuro, like, has established himself as a badass, so everyone, like, wants to work with him, but he's just, like, sitting at Gonji's shop, because most of the movie takes place in Gonji's restaurant. You see Inokichi outside, and he just has, like, the craziest expression on his face. He's doing the thing I mentioned earlier, where he has, like, his two teeth on his lower lip, he's just, like, sucking his lip real hard, just looking, like, dumb. It's just, like, a dumb thing to do. And then he, like, looks super shady outside, he slowly walks inside. So when he first walks in, you know, he's, like, in the back left, Sanjuro's in the foreground, and Gonji's up behind him. And then it shifts just to having them all laid out. You know, Kichi on the left, Gonji in the middle, and Sanjuro on the right. And he's still making this fucking face, just looking at him. And Sanjuro, like, looks at him briefly and then just, like, looks down. He's, like, kind of drunk and doesn't really give a shit. And it literally just made me laugh extremely hard. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. The way the shot is set up. Gonji's in the middle, like, actually looking suspicious of this man. It's unclear why he's there. He's either there to start some shit or to hire Sanjuro, which you learn is what he's actually there for in a minute. That's every scene in this movie. It's either one of those. His expression is so ambiguous and strange that it looks like he might be there to, like, try and kill him or something. But he just looks stupid. <laughs> he 
kicked this fuck's in. The way the shot is set up, Sanjuro is just so dismissive of this man. He's not even looking at him. He's like lower down, vibing, like on the floor, drinking. And he just is made to look like a fucking oaf standing there <laughs> waiting to talk to Sanjuro. It just made me laugh so hard. Like it's one of the many funny things about this movie. Hi, Kevin. Hey. <laughs> yeah. I love it too. And I especially love the Toshiro Mifune hotness scale maxing out right now. 10 out of 10. He looks so good. He does look really good. He's looking older, but he's looking strong. He looks bad for a little bit when he gets his ass completely destroyed. But outside of that, (laughs) 9.9. 10 out of 10 is what he had in Hidden Fortress. And I think he looked better in Hidden Fortress than he looked here. So I'm giving a 9.9. He still looks great. I like him here with a little bit more of the scruff. Yeah, yeah, he is a little bit scruffier. He, like, grows a beard in the temple. So the last scene, he just has a beard, which she, like, didn't. He has, like, a mustache, which she, like, didn't have earlier. It's, like, pretty funny looking. But, you know, he's the king. He is extremely charismatic. It rules. He's so good in this movie. So uh, I'll give it a 9.9. My final rating for this movie is going to reflect my Toshiro Mifune hotness scale rating for this. <laughs> because this is going to be my second 10 out of 10 Kurosawa. Because I really do think it is just all of his strengths and almost no weaknesses. Just a tiny little bit of nitpicks through here, but not enough to actually take it down a peg in my book. Toshiro Mifune owns the screen. The cinematography is maybe the best it's ever been or maybe ever will be. The humor is top notch. The action when it happens is really good. I think the story itself is simple, but effective and engaging. It's such a great story. It got copied several times. There's not a single moment in this movie that I ever get bored. And that's so hard for a foreign film to pull off for an American audience, but it's a testament to the fact that this film is so popular, has such lasting power, such an influence. Like Seven Samurai, it is one of Kurosawa's very best, in my opinion, and deserves a full 10 out of 10, 5 out of 5, 4 out of 4 star rating. Yo, Jimbo. So the thing is, I really liked it. The only thing that I didn't like was that it was so funny that parts of it felt like they maybe were supposed to be emotionally impactful, and I just couldn't feel it. It couldn't ever be deep because it was just so funny and efficient the entire time. I was like, I can't take any of this seriously. Like, I don't know, the wife getting saved and stuff. I was like, nah, I don't know. He just got his ass beat like a second ago. Like, it was so funny, but also so good that it like it was an odd balance. I had this like blockbuster feel or something. I don't want to give it a 10, but I think it's better than a 9. I want to give it a 9.5, but since that is not an acceptable rating in our rating system, I will also give it a 10. I think Yojimbo ruled. All right, so we both really enjoyed this one, and we're about to get a second serving with Kurosawa's second and only other sequel. Yeah, and the first sequel was so good. (laughs) Outside of Sanshiro Sugata Part 2, and I'm pretty confident that we'll pull it off a little better than this. I'm really excited to see Sanjiro again. I remember really liking it. I believe that it has more action than this one. That makes sense. So Shirmafune is more or less playing the same character. It was made right after. I am really looking forward to popping this new Blu-ray in that I have of it. Oh, nice. That'll be good. Yeah, Sanjiro Sugata 2. <laughs> no, just Sanjiro, the, uh, the sequel. <laughs> I'm excited. I've never not liked a Kurosawa sequel. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Check in with us next week for Sanjiro. Sanjiro.